Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 15 of the Unsunday Show. I really appreciate you joining me again today for this episode. I want to talk a little bit today about the system that we have in place in most uh, modern institutional church settings. And by system, I simply mean that top-down authority structure that exists, where we have usually a lead pastor kind of heading things up in charge of the of the whole program, and then, you know, people lined up, staff lined up under him or her, and, you know, the whole kind of mechanism that goes on there, it's, it's a corporation. I mean, most of them really are a corporation. They're a 501c3 corporation, and so... I want to talk about that a little bit today, and then I want to use that as a springboard to continue our conversation in John Zen's book, A Church Building Every Half Mile. And I really want to emphasize in this episode again that that when I'm talking about these things, my intention isn't to attack the church. My intention is to talk about and expose the system that we have in most of our institutional church settings. I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about the system, and I want to make sure that we keep those two separate. I don't have an axe to grind against the uh, the people in any kind of an assembly anywhere. I love Christ's body. I love Christ's church. I love the ecclesia. But I think that what we've done today and what we've allowed to happen through years and years of church history is to allow a system to develop, to come into the ecclesia, which is harmful to the ecclesia. And so I hope that as I talk about things in this podcast, that you'll keep that in mind, that what I do want to expose is what I view as a faulty system, a system that is not the best expression of what Christ is doing in the world today. And so today I want to continue with that, and I want to talk about that system a little bit more, because that system that we have in place today of the one pastor who's, you know, kind of leading the charge is so ingrained in us that it's hard to see at times. It's so ingrained in us that there's a clergy and that there's a laity that we can't see past it. And those of us who begin to see past it are usually viewed with suspicion or at the very least thought to be involved in some unhealthy expression of what church ought to be. So let's talk about that again a little bit today. You know, I've mentioned in past episodes how that the modern church structures that we see in, in most places developed really as, as early as the beginning of the second century when there were some divisions in the church, and the answer to squelching those divisions was to put in place a hierarchy of uh, professional Christianity, of, of bishops, which in the New Testament are the same as elders and overseers, same thing. Pastors, overseers, bishops are referred to the same uh, group of people, I believe, in the New Testament. But the solution was given, first of all, by Ignatius of Antioch to put this hierarchy system in place in order to keep everything in check, kind of a series of checks and balances by putting someone in authority over someone else. And I don't mean to imply that every institutional church is like this. I realize there's a lot of faithful pastors out there a lot of faithful shepherds out there who are shepherding the flock that is among them. And I don't want to give the impression that everyone's like this and that it's all cookie cutter because it's certainly not. Again, I'm just wanting to expose this system, this system that's been handed to us not by the New Testament, but by church history, 
and talk honestly and openly about it and ask honest questions about why it's there and what can be done about it. So when we talk about top-down authority being instituted in as early as the second century, beginning of the second century, we have to go back to the New Testament, I think, and compare that with the words of Jesus and ask some honest questions about why it's there and why we allow it in our day and age to perpetuate. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 20, and I'm going to be reading verses 24 through 28, if I may. You'll remember the story here is when the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came to Jesus and said, Look, when you come into your kingdom, would you grant that my sons get to sit at your right hand and the other one at your left hand? And verse 24 says that when the other ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, that's from Matthew 20, verses 24 through 28. And so Jesus' words to us are very clear that the world system, the Gentiles, as he puts it here, remember he's talking in a Jewish context, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over the Gentiles, and that they have great ones in authority who exercise authority over them. But then Jesus is very clear in saying, It shall not be so among you, but whosoever would be great among you must be your servant. And so when I look back at church history and I see what we've been given in church history, I see that this system has been put in place where we do have those exercising authority over others within the assembly. It's been that way for a long time, and it's still with us today in various forms. We have the one pastor CEO in our institutional church settings who has all the authority in that setting, in that institution. He's the boss, or she's the boss. And there's hiring and firing going on, and Everything that you would expect in a corporate atmosphere with a one-person CEO at the top. And so what we have in most institutional church settings is this top-down authority that's in place that Jesus clearly reprimanded and said, It shall not be so among you. And yet look around. Look around at what we have. And then let's ask ourselves, what don't we understand about it shall not be so among you? Because everywhere we look... Almost without exception, this is what we see. We see top-down authority in place where Jesus said there was no top-down authority to exist. It wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be there. And yet, that's what we have. And we've made the pastor the center. We've made the pastor the, the focal point in our modern assemblies, in our modern institutional churches. We have the one-person show. We have, you know, it's, it's like, a, it's like a, a pyramid where we've got the, the person at the top running things, making decisions for the entire group. And we call them the clergy. And those who are subservient to that, of course, are referred to as the laity. And it's the clergy's job to make all the, all the decisions. It's the clergy's job because they're professionally trained Christians. And I'm using air quotes when I say that. It's expected by the laity. The laity anticipates or, inspe- or expects the clergy to do all of the work or to do all of the leading, not really all the work, but all the leading, and to make all the important decisions because, after all, they're the ones who are theologically trained and they're the professional Christians. 
So in most institutional church settings, the laity gets saddled with, you know, the small jobs, taking out the trash, the mopping the floor, the the cleaning up of the facilities and the campus and, you know, manicuring the lawns and everything like that. And it's usually those within the supposed laity who have full-time jobs that are expected to come over and volunteer their time for a lot of this stuff too. And people are exhausted. Well, it all it all stems from that top-down authority model that we have in place, which is nowhere in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament is against that kind of an authority structure within the assembly, within the ecclesia. Jesus had more to say about this a couple chapters later in Matthew, in Matthew uh, 23, and I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 12 and make a couple of comments there. Verse 1 says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. Now let's stop there for just a second. I just want to make one comment. Jesus was born under the law. The people that he was talking to here were all born under the law. They were all obligated to obey the law of Moses. And at that time, the Pharisees, Jesus said, sat in Moses' seat. So Jesus, in not breaking the law of Moses, he didn't come to to break the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And so you would expect that Jesus would make a comment like this, because the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, Jesus said, do what they tell you to do, as far as Moses is concerned. But then he says, but do not the works that they do, because they're hypocrites. And then he goes on to say, for they preach, but they do not practice. And then here's some of the practices that uh, the Pharisees of Jesus' day were actually involved in. He says in verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. In other words, they have elaborate robes. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So I want to zero in there on on verse 7 and following, where, where Jesus says that these Pharisees, these hypocritical Pharisees, loved being called rabbi by others. They loved the titles of teacher. They love the honorific titles. They thrived on the honorific titles. They love to be called rabbi by others. But what does Jesus say about that? He says, but you are not to be called rabbi. In other words, you're not to get tangled up in honorific titles. He says, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. You're all on an equal level playing field. And there's not one of you above another. You're not to be called teacher, for you have one teacher. There's only one teacher, people, and he is none of us. And Jesus says, you are all brothers. And so he's leveling the playing field within the ecclesia and saying there's not to be this hierarchy of authority within the assembly. Not only is a hierarchical structure of authority to be absent in the ecclesia, but so is the use of honorific titles. And the ones specifically that Jesus calls out are rabbi and 
teacher and father and instructors. But we could add to that list today the ones that we've put in place. We could add, you know, pastor. We could add these honorific titles of bishop, bishop so-and-so, you know, pastor so-and-so, reverend so-and-so. And there are those within the modern church today who thrive on those titles. But Jesus said very plainly, you're not to be called by an honorific title. You know, Paul called himself an apostle, didn't he? When you see how Paul introduces himself in different New Testament letters, you see that he introduces himself as Paul, an apostle, and then he'll follow that by something. He'll say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. But Paul never addressed himself as the Apostle Paul. He never said, hey, it's me, the Apostle Paul over here. And I think there's a big difference between saying Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and saying Apostle Paul. One is a description of his function within the assembly, and it's one function among many, many functions. The other is an honorific title. And Paul stayed away from honorific titles. We call him the Apostle Paul, but he never called himself that. He called himself Paul, an apostle. Peter did the same thing. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not, hey, I'm the Apostle Peter. Sit down and listen to me. That didn't happen. The whole idea of top-down authority and of hierarchical structure within the New Testament is missing. What we see in modern institutional church settings, has no foundation, has no basis in the New Testament, in the Ecclesia. It's not there. In fact, just the opposite is there. We're not to be using honorific titles, and we're not to be setting up hierarchical structures that put one believer in authority over another. And I've said it in past episodes, and we'll probably hit on it again here in a few minutes, about the clergy-lady distinction, that as a former pastor, I can tell you there's no foo-foo dust Nothing special happened at my ordination that would have set me apart from anyone else within the assembly. Church tradition has given us this. Church tradition has given us the idea that the pastor has some kind of special anointing and special authority over other people within the assembly that other people within the assembly don't have and must submit to. But that's not the assembly. That's not every member functioning within the body of Christ, as we talked about last time. The system of hierarchical structure that we have in place in modern institutional churches is, I believe, the biggest enemy to the functioning of the ecclesia the way Jesus designed it to function. In other words, when we go against what Jesus said and we set up authoritative systems over one another and we employ the use of honorific titles to further separate one of us from another and to further widen the gap that exists by reinforcing it with those honorific titles— It seems we're turning a deaf ear to Jesus' words about the ecclesia. And it seems to me like the churches that we're busy building don't look anything like the ecclesia that Jesus is building. Well, with that in mind, you know, just laying some foundational stuff down there that I wanted to talk about before we turn our attention to Zen's book, I want to approach section 6 of John Zen's book. And again, the title of the book is A Church Building Every Half Mile. What Makes American Christianity Tick? And like I've said in past episodes, I think this is the third episode I've done on this book. I really recommend this book. I've read it a number of times. It's a short book. It's, you know, it's a, it's a quick read, but it's full of information. It's full of very good information. And if your journey is similar to mine, or if you're starting to question things about 
institutional church like I was questioning and that I still question, I think you're going to really enjoy this book. And so I suggest buying it. I'll put a link in the show notes again on this episode so that you have a quick way to get to it on Amazon. But in light of our discussion about the one pastor church model, the one pastor setup that's in most institutional churches where we've got, you know, the one pastor in charge who kind of acts like the CEO of the corporation, Zenz entitles section six of his book, What Happens When a Pastor Leaves? So let's read this a little bit. He says, quote, Since American Christianity revolves around the traditional pastoral office, most churches will face the repeated trauma of having to replace a pastor. The average length of a pastorate is five years. Not only do pastors have reasons for feeling called elsewhere, they also, of course, get the boot. In America's largest Protestant denomination, an average of 116 of 37,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention dismiss their pastors each month. He continues by saying this, quote, There are variations, but usually when a pastor exits, a certain predictable chain of events is set into motion. First, a pastoral search committee is set up, and the process has begun to find a replacement. If the church is part of a denomination, then there are prescribed procedures to follow, and the headquarters will help supply candidates. If the church is non-denominational, it will use advertising, the internet, recommendations, and other means to locate potential aspirants. Some congregations will seek an interim pastor to fill in until a full-time pastor is discovered. End of quote. When I read this, I'm reminded of the fact that we're so pastor-centric that we actually believe and we actually practice the things that Ignatius said that if the bishop isn't present, don't let anything be done. Because if there's not a professionally trained pastor among us, and I'm using air quotes, the whole show comes to a grinding halt. And as Zen said, we, we form a pastoral search committee in order to find the next guy or gal who we think is qualified. And of course, we always bring them from the outside. It's always someone who's been to seminary or Bible college or both. And we bring them from the outside based on their resume. And as Zenz notes, in some instances, probably most instances, we'll find someone to serve as an interim pastor until the next full-time guy or gal gets there and is put in place and installed within the assembly. You see, we can't function without this one person. And let me remind you that this one person is only mentioned in one place in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4. And yet we've institutionalized this person and we've made this person the center, the central figure within the institutional church setting, the institutional church model, and we can't function without him or her. We're completely dependent upon him or her. But isn't it interesting that in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was given, that they didn't scramble to go find a pastor. They didn't have to find a pastor in order to be a complete assembly. They didn't have to know who the pastor was, and they didn't have to get the pastor installed and ordained and and go through all of that process before they could do anything as an assembly. No, they immediately started to preach. They immediately went from house to house. They immediately lived life together in Jesus, and there was no hierarchical structure. But when we get so pastor-centered, when we get so pastor-centric, 
This is what it becomes. It becomes an environment where we can't do anything apart from the pastor. In fact, we're so pastor-centered that when we're talking about the church down the street, we'll call it John's church. Oh, that's, that's John's church. Or we'll say Pastor John's church, and we get back to the honorific titles. Or in some instances, and perhaps many instances, we'll just use the word pastor to refer to John or whoever this head person is. We'll just say pastor. Well, we need to run that by pastor. We need to run that through pastor. Have you checked with pastor? I'm going to have lunch with pastor. And so we use these honorific titles and overuse these honorific titles because we get so dependent on this one person within the assembly. But pastor refers to one function among many within the assembly. In the same way that Paul and the other apostles introduced themselves as Paul an apostle or Peter an apostle, and never as I'm the apostle Paul, we've taken that concept though and turned it around and we have pastor so-and-so. We don't have John, a pastor. We have pastor so-and-so and the entire identity of the local church hinges on that one person pastor because that's John's church. And we immediately think, well, who's the pastor? John. I'm using John as a you know fictitious name. I'm not trying to point out someone named John. But that's what we do, isn't it? We so associate it. It just comes up in conversation without us even thinking about it. I'm thinking about attending Peter's church today. I'm thinking about attending Pat's church today. It's not Pat's church. That's Jesus' church. But we've so centered it and so focused it on one person that it's become Pat's church to most of us. That's how we think. That's how, how dependent we are upon that clergy-laity distinction remaining in place. Not only do we not think to question it, but in most instances, we don't want to question it. We're afraid to question it because we won't know what to do. Because we've been so trained to do nothing apart from pastor. Sens continues in this section at the bottom of page 44, and he says this, quote, In many cases, losing a pastor can create a number of problems for a church. Of course, there is the ordeal of finding another pastor, which can often be a difficult, frustrating, expensive, and time-consuming period for a congregation. Because so many churches are built around the pastor's charisma, it is not uncommon for attendance to plummet after that person exits. Sometimes a pastor's absence will bring about a drop in the offering, and a church may struggle to pay the bills. There have been cases where banks will not lend large sums of money to churches unless the pastor cosigns. The banks aren't stupid. They know that the church's income is directly tied into the presence and longevity of the pastor. End of quote. These are some of the byproducts, some of the symptoms of having bought into this system where the pastor is central, that the pastor himself or herself has been institutionalized to the point where the identity of the entire church is wrapped up in them. As Zenz noted in that quote, many churches are built around the pastor's charisma, and if the pastor chooses to exit, people leave. People will follow that pastor if they can get to where he's going. They'll try and follow that person if they can, because that's the one that they're used to, and that's why they're there. And let's just be honest, they're there because of this one person's charisma, and they are so tied to and identified with that one person's charisma that They end up leaving this institutional church setting and, of course, giving drops, as Zenz explained, and 
There's all this financial crunch because we've got mortgages to pay, we've got utilities to pay, we've got salaries to pay that are still in place, that are still there. All because we've so centralized the one-man pastor and we've institutionalized the one-man pastor or the one-woman pastor to the point where we can't exist without it. We don't know how. Let's turn our attention for just a moment back to the clergy laity ideas and let's read a little bit of Zen's uh, from page 46, about the middle of the page, the last paragraph really on the page, page 46 of his book, A Church Building Every Half Mile. He says this, quote, The traditional clergy role and all of its unrealistic demands are nowhere found in the New Testament. It puts those within its pale at risk in numerous ways. The statistics reveal that the clergy system has brought many into various kinds of ruin. Remember, around 1,400 people every month are leaving the ministry for a number of different reasons. We can be sure that many are exiting because because what they were being paid to do caused their lives and families to unravel and come apart at the seams. The root problem, Zen's notes, is the pastor-centered system. End of quote. And then on the next page, on page 47, he quotes Anne Rothorn, who says this, quote, Some might say it is overstating the case to claim that clergy are the oppressors and laity the oppressed. So let us make several things clear. It is primarily the system that oppresses. It took hundreds of years for the church to become clericalized, taken over by clergy, and the present generation of clergy cannot be blamed for the ills of the institution they inherited. To continue to oppress the laity, however, after having become aware of the oppression, would make them blameworthy. End of quote. And again, that's at the top of page 47. Zenz then continues in the middle of page 47, and he says this, quote, J. Lee Grady recently wrote an excellent article, Advice to a Young Leader in a Time of Shaking. He gave 10 points to help leaders avoid moral failure in their ministry. Some of his points were, Live a humble and transparent life. Stay open to correction. Don't allow people to make you a celebrity. Make family a priority. Don't build your own kingdom. These are great suggestions, but the problem is that the people he's addressing are in a system that militates against every one of those important perspectives. We need to stop putting band-aids on the surface and address the system that keeps right on steamrolling over people. End of quote. Boy, what an interesting statement, because the clergy-laity top-down authority system is so interwoven in our thinking that we can't shake it. It's such a part of what we do and what we've been told has to be done that it's hard to think outside that box. It's hard to think outside that clergy-laity system. But it is that very system that militates against itself. It militates against correcting itself. It can't. I recently heard an interview with a former megachurch pastor who had experienced this supposed moral failure and had fallen and was frantically trying to climb back into some kind of a position of leadership somehow within some church somewhere. (laughs) And the advice that he was being given was this same kind of advice to, if you're going to come back, you need to live a humble and transparent life and stay open to correction and Don't allow people to make you a celebrity, and on and on and on. But it's the system itself that mitigates against that. It's the system itself that makes one person prominent. And so to think that we can climb back into that same system and not have it do that to us again, I think, is a little naive. 
Or as Zenz puts it, we need to stop putting band-aids on the surface and address the system that keeps right on steamrolling over people. Zenz closes his chapter by asking the question, If the pastor doctrine is so vital and so central to the life of a church, why doesn't the pastor emphasis jump out at you when the New Testament is read? Where is there any inkling in the New Testament about this one gift being the linchpin of congregational life, about one person being the cerebellum between Christ and the body? End of quote. And again, I want to emphasize that it is this system of top-down clergy laity authority that I am addressing in this podcast. It's not an attack on people. It's a questioning of the system that's been in place for over 2,000 years and simply asking, is this the best expression of Christ and his assembly, Christ expressing himself in an assembly where every member is assumed to be functioning, where every member is a priest, where everyone who is a Christian is part of that body and is functioning as part of that body and able to use their spiritual gifts to the fullest. And again, I think we come up with a resounding no that what we have in place today is the one pastor system, the clergy-laity division, both of which Jesus himself addressed and said, it shall not be so among you. And yet look around because this is where we're at. So I'll leave you with those thoughts for today. And again, I really appreciate you all joining me as I trek down this journey, trek down this path that I'm on. And in the next episode, we'll continue uh, interacting with Zen's book, A Church Building Every Half Mile. I think I mentioned an episode or two ago that things are getting pretty busy in our lives around here, and so I may not be real regular in posting for the next uh, couple of months or so, but I will get episodes out there as I am able. So until next time, y'all, I really appreciate you joining me, and remember you can find me at unsunday.com, unsunday.com. There's a contact form on that site that you can fill out and send to me, and I'll interact with you. So until next time, y'all take care.